Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my latest project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the Ark of the Scriptures. You're not going to read the entire Bible. It's only 300 chapters or so, a chapter a day, something that anyone can do. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners for the accountability and better discussion. It's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming it at novices and strugglers, those who have not gotten into the Word of God yet. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. We also have Zoom groups meeting online, so if you'd like to join those, drop me a line. We're in the book of Genesis for the radio show, a great book. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. Please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Uh, The first bunch of weeks, we've covered the first three chapters of Genesis. So much to talk about there. Previous week's shows are available on Spotify, iTunes, Facebook, Google Podcast, etc., And on today's show, we're going to cover the great and powerful passage in Genesis 4, the Cain and Abel story, and I look forward to getting into that with you. Lord, be with us today. Help us to understand uh, the details, the richness of this wonderful chapter, sobering chapter, Lord, in your scriptures. Help us to understand and apply the lessons that we, we can learn from this about you and about ourselves. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, the station, and the show. We'll take a break before we get rolling. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 4 today, the Cain and Abel story. This continues the second account in Genesis. We've talked about before that there are 12 accounts that are the structure of the book of Genesis, and the second account runs from chapters 2 to 4. Genesis 2 had the creation and perfection Genesis 3 had original sin and separation, and Genesis 4 is going to be the violent sequel to chapter 3. Chapter 5, verse 1, will start the third account in the book of Genesis. In particular, we see that the root of sin from Genesis 3 becomes the fruit of sin in Genesis 4, and we see sin continuing in the family tree. A second generation is offered the choice of obedience or rebellion, life or death. And this is a second story on the importance of family and the tragedy of dysfunctional families. The idea of household and family with children debuts here. And so we're moving from husband-wife to parent-child, and especially with a focus on the relationship between the siblings. And even more particularly, we're looking at the relationship between two boys or young men. Now, beyond family, this introduces the idea of passion and emotion from humans, part of what makes us human. We have actual human death rather than it just being forecasted by God at the end of chapter 3. It goes deeper on the topics of crime, punishment, and justice. There are also attempts to relate to God through sacrifice. We'll spend some time talking about that. And in the postscript of the story, which we'll cover next week, We'll see the emergence of agriculture, cities, and the arts. As Leon Cass observes, that 
all of this is many of the essential elements of human nature, right? So this is a big chapter for what it introduces. More broadly, we could also see this as how people would live without moral or instruction or the law. None is mentioned. Maybe it's presumed, maybe it's done, but aside from those opening directions about avoiding a tree, nothing else is given in the text. Leon Cass says here, this is why the natural or uninstructed way does not work, and therefore why the subsequent giving of God's law might be both necessary and welcome. If you think about this story and these stories in the context of the big picture, where Genesis and the rest of the Bible is going is to Abraham, Moses, the giving of the law, God working with the people of Israel, Old Covenant, and then eventually Jesus' New Covenant, Holy Spirit, etc. So this is all part of that big picture. All right, let's start into the text, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a son. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. So here we're introduced to Cain and Abel, and there is a ton here. It's going to take us all the way through this first segment. First thing that Adam and Eve did after getting booted from the garden, bad joke here, they raised Cain. Well, actually what the text says is they lay with each other. And this is the uh, Hebrew word no, which is yada, not yada yada, but yada. Uh, and it's a, a word of great intimacy. It's used for sex, but it implies intimacy in a relationship. Later, the word's going to be used for us with God and talking about our unfaithfulness as adultery. If we engage in idolatry, it is seen as adultery. It's seen as a violation of the intimate relationship that is the same word that is used here. In response to the last word in Genesis 3, which is mortality and no more access to the tree of life, it's also interesting that the first word of Genesis 4 is procreation, right? That a baby is going to be born in line with how Adam has named Eve as the mother of the living. As verse 1 continues, Eve gives birth to Cain. So Cain is the firstborn to Adam and Eve and the first to be born at all. And so Cain, rather than his parents, is actually the stronger prototype for humans as one who is born rather than placed in the garden. And of course, if you know what Cain does here in chapter 4, that's a big ouch for us. If he's the prototype, that's pretty troubling. Verse 1 continues, Eve names Cain. First thing to note here, where's Adam? Uh, why isn't Adam involved in this at all? He recedes into the background for the rest of this account. Is he going back to passivity? That was the problem in chapter 3, verse 6. That's not a good sign. Maybe there's no need for him in the narrative, but you'd hope to see Adam involved in the naming of the child, particularly when Adam was naming the animals back in chapter 2. A few things that are interesting about the name itself, she does acknowledge God's hand in this, and so it's a matter of God's provision and her and Adam's participation, so that's a good sign. She acknowledges that it's a male child. It is possible that uh, other daughters have preceded this and they're not mentioned, but then it seems unlikely, right, that verse 1 mentions Adam laying with Eve. So the traditional interpretation here is that Cain is the firstborn of all children. The name also has some reference to herself and her new name. And Cain's names relate to root words meaning to possess and perhaps to form, shape, or create, 
And so uh, at least the latter of that lines him up with God's vision for mankind. The idea of possessing is a little more troubling. As it turns out, Leon Cass puts it, that Cain will become a proud farmer, the sort of man who lays possessive claim to the earth and who is proud of his ability to bring forth to create fruit from the ground. So he does live up to the names that he's given. In verse 2, we have the birth of Abel, and in a nutshell, it's uncelebrated. We have all the detail in verse 1, but look how little Abel gets here at the beginning of verse 2. The word later is almost as if it's an afterthought. The narrative is unconcerned with their age gap. Implies some favoritism from at least Eve. And this is going to be a theme throughout Genesis and is still common today, especially with firstborns and especially with firstborn sons. Interesting as well that nothing is given by way of explanation for his name. Cain's name is explained. Seth's name will be explained in chapter 4, verse 25. Later, his name is used as a Hebrew word meaning breath or meaningless, as in Ecclesiastes, and it implies, prophesies, foreshadows the brevity of his life. And notice that he's only introduced as Cain's brother, not even as Adam and Eve's son, as if he is only or mostly important in that role. So here we have Cain and Abel as the second and first sons introduced. And it turns out that sibling rivalry and birth order is a huge theme in Genesis, and it presents challenges for each. Leon Cass, again, quite helpful on this. He notes that younger children have the advantage uh, in that the older is already established in size and ability in their parents' affections, and the younger elicits our sympathy as an underdog. The older child, of course, has some advantages, but as Cass notes, quote, they face serious and subtler difficulties. Though the first carrier of parental hopes, they feel that more is expected of them, and more often than not, it is the birth of his sibling which radically changes the world as he had known it. He now has competition, especially for his mother's attention. As to the rivalry, Cass says, it's between man and woman, two is the coupling number, but between brother and brother, two is the fighting number. You know, there's a natural complementarity between husband and wife as marriage and sexual partners, but there is no natural impulse or passion that seeks to unite brother with brother. What is experienced instead is immediately rivalry for parental attention, and in the long run, competition for the inheritance of family name, home, and fortune. Notice also that in the story that follows, every detail is going to emphasize the things that separate them. And again, this is going to be a recurring theme throughout Genesis, most notably the brothers at the end of Genesis with Joseph and the other 11. But we'll see this with the two sisters, Leah and Rachel. And we might imagine the differences between, say, a brother and a sister, an older sister and a younger brother, and all the various combinations. Now, the end of verse 2 identifies them by their occupations. Cain is a farmer, Abel is a shepherd. And these are the true oldest professions, biblically, after the gardener, at least, of chapter 2, verse 15. After Adam and Eve have covered, be fruitful and multiply, in the commissioning of Genesis 1, Cain and Abel now are working on dominion. Abel's working with livestock, a shepherd, presumably with sheep and perhaps with others. And Cain lines up with the cursed ground. But as we mentioned uh, back in last week's show, Genesis 3, verses 17 and 18, 
Cain is also serving the earth by working the soil. And it is clearly, most clearly, in line with the commission that God has given back in chapter 2, verses 5 and 15, and in chapter 3, verse 23. All of this combined also is an effort to deal with the scarcity that has been introduced and deepened in Genesis 3 as a result of original sin. And so here it's also interesting, at least to an economist, that we have specialization and mutually beneficial trade. They're both doing something different and presumably gain, uh, gaining through mutually beneficial trade, albeit within the family. These are the two primary and complementary ways in which people earn a living and each brother has staked out one of them. Now, why did they choose what they did? Was there a comparative advantage in terms of skills? Is there taste and preferences for certain job characteristics? Maybe Abel is less sociable. Uh, Maybe he wants more solitude. Maybe Cain wants to stay near home. We're not told any of this stuff, but presumably it's connected to some combination of preferences for the work and some kind of differences in skill. In any sense, it's also a useful literary device. We have A opposing B, Cain versus Abel, shepherd versus farmer, but it also points to a biblical sense of important differences and competitions between worldviews. Cass notes the natural rivalry of brothers may be further accentuated by differences in habits and ways of life, right? That the choices we make aren't just individual choices. They bleed over into how we see ourselves, how we relate to the world, how we relate to each other. In Christian theology, right, we're all called to be brothers in Christ, that our primary identity is in that. And so our differences are overcome, whether racial or class or preferences or whatever, in a a unity that is important, that goes way beyond, that transcends whatever differences we might have in occupation, class, or the like. Couple other things we know here. God later seems to prefer nomads and shepherds over those who settle, especially city dwellers. Think of Joseph and his brothers instead of the Egyptians in Genesis 46 24, the shepherds that are despised by the Egyptians, Moses and David, two prominent examples as well. Shepherds are more vulnerable to nature as farmers are with respect to weather, but farmers have private land possession, self sufficiency. As Cass notes, they're inclined to regard themselves as responsible creatively as maker for the produce itself, whereas a shepherd is roaming, at least in the old days, and it fits more with the biblical theme of being aliens and strangers rather than citizens of this world. It may not be obvious to us city dwellers as well, but farmers have considerable intellect and discipline. They have to foresee and plan for grain to become bread. As Cass notes, they have to invest be self-controlled, develop tools, and protect crops. And in contrast, shepherds have a simpler life, relatively unsophisticated. And from a worldly perspective, it's a picture of wandering that is less purposeful. If this is the case, then Cain is more complex, and there are greater dangers and prospects of his greater achievements. Cass takes this line and says, everything depends upon whether Cain's pride can be tamed by learning or remembering that not he, but God, is the source of his farmerly success. Two other thoughts to close out these two verses. In our only introduction to both of them, nothing is said about their relationship with God or each other prior to the events that are about to unfold. We're also not told in verse 3 about how long it is in the course of time and what got them there. 
There's, the narrative is very sparse here. And then the last point, Cass notes that with respect to one's pregnancy, there's no labor pains mentioned, as we might have expected at the end of Genesis 3. And for the flocks and the farmer, uh, life's not too bad either, right? The picture east of Eden is not as harsh as we have been led to believe. Materially, it's tougher, right? But not as rough as maybe Genesis 3 would have implied. But spiritually, things are going to be pretty rough. And we'll see that in the verses to come after our next break. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 4 today, the story of Cain and Abel. And we got through verses 1 and 2 in the first segment, so we pick it up with verses 3 through 5 for this segment. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. There's a ton to talk about in this passage as well. The first thing is where on earth does this come from? Offering, sacrifice? It may imply that instructions had been given earlier. For example, later we'll see Abraham tithing, and we're like, well, where did that come from? Uh, and so it's possible that the law is merely codifying earlier instructions. The things we see later in the law are just putting formally what was already kind of known. But we're not told that. We're not told that God instructed them in this way. So it's not explicit. And Commentators have often noted that sacrifice probably would have occurred naturally anyway, as man looks to figure out how to have relationship with God. I'm not sure I'd go this far, but I like what Leon Cass says here. He says, sacrifices of human origins. At this point, God neither commands nor requests it. We have no reason to believe that he even welcomes it. On the contrary, we have reason to suspect that the human impulse to sacrifice is highly problematic. To be sure, God will eventually command sacrifices, though then only under the strictest rules. So a few things to note here. First, this is the first recorded act of worship. And so it alludes to a somewhat natural desire to sacrifice and worship, or at least to look like one is doing so. Given what follows, we're suspicious that sacrifice originates with Cain. The term itself in the Hebrew is minshah, which is a neutral term that does not connote something sacred. And a troubling aspect of the word is that it implies ownership and possession rather than the preferred biblical concept of stewardship. Now, why are they sacrificing it? Is, is it out of fear and obligation? Is it a cynical attempt to manipulate gods? Or is it out of gratitude? The last is hoping to bridge the gap with the divine, and that would be good intentions at least, if it's not a good thing to do, at least it's well-intentioned. The first two, of course, are more troubling, right? That there's a misunderstanding of God's love, grace, power, etc. Maybe it's a bribe to something one doesn't fully understand or control, trying to improve one's lot, or to avoid trouble, trying to placate God, for example, after chapter 3, Cass observes for primitive man, and especially for farmers eager for rain, it is perfectly fitting that the primordial farmer be the first to think of sacrifice. Now, to his credit, Cain does divine the presence of the divine, 
but he doesn't get what he hopes or expects from the encounter. In God, he's not just getting a Santa Claus who's doling out rain and blessing crops, but a God who cares about individuals and what's right. And from God, he's probably or certainly surprised that he's coming off worse than his little brother and second sacrificer. Don't you get credit for going first? Bigger picture, unless man understands God and what he wants, it's a shot in the dark. We're likely to offer what would please us. As we talked about Matthew Henry's line, God made us in his image, we'd like to return the favor. When we're offering sacrifices out of ignorance, we're most likely to offer God what we think we would want rather than what we're guessing at in terms of what he would want. And he's probably hoping here for some credit for good intentions. Finally, it's interesting that when Seth shows up in chapter 4, verse 25, no sacrifices are mentioned, but instead we're told that he calls upon the name of the Lord. And so, again, it brings into, whole, into question the whole idea of sacrifice, at least at this early stage in the first place. Now, why did Abel follow? Was it suggested by Cain? Perhaps Cain is trying to outdo Abel in God's eyes. He couldn't possibly lose to his shepherd to his younger brother. In any case, Abel takes the opportunity to heart, and it turns out quite well for him. Well, at least short term. Well, really long term, right? If we look at the New Testament, we'll come back to that uh, as we go. Verses four and five, we get the disparate responses to the sacrifices. Cain's offering is not accepted. Now note, it doesn't say that Cain himself is rejected. It's that Cain's offering is not accepted. There's big differences there. In fact, God will address Cain soon and encourage him in what turns out to be a growth opportunity. So there's nothing fatal here. There's nothing that's a big deal. Nothing that has to be fatal if you know the rest of the story. Now, Abel's sacrifice was looked on with favor. And again, this doesn't mean that he offered a completely acceptable or perfect sacrifice, but it's good enough, right? It's looked on with favor. Now, how did they know God's response in verse 5? It's not recorded. Maybe it's verbally, but if so, if God's words are recorded in the next verse, why wouldn't they be recorded here? Maybe fire descends as it did for Elijah. But again, it probably would have been mentioned. Or maybe there's a longer term, there's some time involved here. Maybe maybe they saw an impact on their labors. Uh, But it's interesting that God's voice is not direct here in verse 5. Now, why is there a disparate response? Of course, that's a much bigger question. And as Jonathan Sachs notes, superficially, they're the same, yet between them, there is all the difference in the world. So all we're told here, and the motives will be revealed soon, but that's not given yet. Here's what we're told. Verse 3, Cain gave some of the fruits of the soil. Verse 4, Abel gave the fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. So why the disparate responses? Well, there's a number of possibilities and could be some combination of these possibilities. The first is that the type of sacrifice is the cause or a cause, that the plant versus animal is different. Remember, the land has been cursed in chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Uh, So maybe plants are not as impressive. Harder to hold that position, I think, given that grain offerings are commanded later. You could say, well, there's credit given for emulating animal sacrifice, what God did back in chapter 3, verse 21. Maybe it's that blood is favored or even required 
even at this early stage, even without instruction. Second, and this is my favorite, I think, it's the quality of the sacrifice, right? That Cain gives some, whereas Abel gives the fat portions, the best part, and from the firstborn. If that's the case, then we're looking at a random gift almost rather than a choice gift. We're looking at a gift that is impulsive rather than thoughtful. There's different levels of purpose and effort here. And if this is the case, it's interesting that Abel is born as an afterthought, as we were told about him, but his sacrifice has much more thought. It's Cain who gives a a sacrifice that is an afterthought. Maybe it's the cost of the sacrifice, uh, that instead of a costly sacrifice of giving the best and the firstborn, you have Cain just kind of throwing in some produce. That's also weird, right, that animals aren't being eaten at this point, uh, but animal life is harder to replace, presumably, and so maybe that's the higher cost of that. For us, this is reminiscent of the book of Malachi and akin to us throwing a few bucks in the plate and using Malachi's great phrase, robbing God, right? Let's make sure our sacrifices are uh, of significant quality. Maybe it's the timing of the sacrifice. It was probably determined by... Cain, verse 3 says, in the course of time, it's probably connected to his vocation and the time of harvest. And if that's the case, he's giving what he wanted when he wanted. And this would be a picture of sacrifice out of convenience and not the best of priorities. What about the motives? In what spirit are these things given? Well, it's unknown. It's speculative. Perhaps Cain is worried about the rain. From what follows, for Cain at least, uh, there's some set of low calculating motives. He's showing off by giving of his excess. He's seeking to manipulate God, something that's not so great. And we know that from how he responds to God's response to him in verses 5 and following. Perhaps it's related to dependence on God, faith, uh, attitude, and motives are given a lot of attention in the scriptures, most broadly, is it seen as a duty rather than an act of like real worship. In any case, as Borgman puts it, passing over any possible interest in why God favors Abel's offering, the story moves on quickly, as the reader should. The dramatic focus emerges, an exploration of Cain's response to rejection and God's response to the depressed Cain. In other words, it's interesting to consider why the sacrifices are different, but that really doesn't matter that much. How Cain responds, how God responds, then how Cain responds is by far the larger issue, so don't miss that. And what is Cain's response in verse 5? Not repentance, or at least questions and humility, but very angry and a downcast face. This points to anger and shame, both with roots in pride and wounded pride. Cain is the firstborn farmer who produces crops by his own efforts and ingenuity, and he's the first to sacrifice, and he's coming up short against a lazy shepherd and follower in sacrifice. You can see, or at least least sympathize with why Cain's going to have some trouble with this. I think it's also interesting to think that Cain isn't excited for his brother's success. That's one measure of jealousy, envy, and the health of our spirits is when we can be happy for the success of other people. And that's clearly not the case for Cain. Cain's also upset with God. He'll be upset with Abel soon, too. We'll see that. But it's his fault. They're blameless, and God here is trying to help. 
Henry says, Matthew Henry, it is a certain sign of an unhumbled heart to quarrel with those rebukes which we have by our own sin brought upon ourselves. Again, we don't know what it is. Cain may not even know, but what's the proper response there? Ask some questions, humility, figure it out instead of getting upset at the harm that one turns out to have caused. It's not only shame, but injury, and thus a misguided a misguided call to justice and fairness. Cass says a perceived insult experienced as injustice leads to anger and the desire for revenge. When looked at it in this light, Cain appears not as some monstrous deviant, but as humanly prototypical, right? Cain's problem is one that we face every day. So when a gift is rejected, what's our response? What are our choices? We either try to do better if we're really interested in the other person, or we get angry in which case the concern is really not with the other in the first place, but with ourselves. Cass continues here, Cain's display of anger reveals retroactively his state of soul in making the sacrifice. Because he had sought to place God in his debt by means of his gift, Cain feels slighted by what he takes to be God's unjustified rejection of his offering. If indeed part of Cain's anger is directed at the divine, it shows how presumptuous were his expectations. All right, we'll take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcasts are available on Spotify, Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. Questions and comments on my Facebook are always welcome. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 4 today in the great story of Cain and Abel. First segment, we did verses 1 and 2. Second segment, we did verses 3 through 5. And we pick it up in verse 6 at this point. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. So God tries to verbally reason with Cain, explicitly and verbally having a discussion with him, reminiscent of a much shorter but more famous passage, Luke 15, 28, the older brother, prodigal son, became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Verse 6, the angry and face downcast verifies and repeats, emphasizes the narrative we just read at the end of verse 5. But God confronts and exhorts, wanting the best for Cain. God is a divine coach, as Borgman puts it. God wants to meet us within and to help us through our temptations. Ultimately, this is best manifested by the Holy Spirit that comes to live inside believers. Galatians 5.16, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. This is a timely, specific warning. It's not a command, but it is a warning, and it is timely. God steps in at just the right time to do to try and encourage Cain to do the right thing. Verse 7, he's encouraged to do what is right. He's even offered a blessing or a carrot following his obedience. First thing, of course, for the if you've read the Bible before, is that this parallels what will later become the Old Covenant. Right? If you do the right thing, I will bless you. Uh, later in verse 7, we get the opposite of that. If you disobey, uh, you're going to have trouble. And so that's, this is very Old Covenant-ish in this opening of verse 7. It's still kind of vague, from God here, do what is right. It implies that Cain should know, even though we're not sure as readers, God seems clear that Cain should know what's going on. And in any case, this indicates God's love and desire for good relationship that God 
intervenes here at all. There's also the picture of there being practical implications of doing what is right. That if you do what is right, it'll lift up your countenance. You lift up a good offering, it lifts up your countenance, your face. Verse 7 continues, if not, sin is crouching at the door. Reminds me of Revelation 3.20, a very different picture. Christ says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. But the sin desires him for other purposes, reminiscent of two great passages, Romans 6, 12 through 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under the law, but under grace. And then James 1, 13 through 15, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And we see both of those passages in full here in the story of Cain. God warns Cain about his desire And that desire is going to take him, as Jesus will teach in Matthew 5, from anger to murder. Probably the first use of metaphor in the Bible. Sin is crouching at the door. Pretty cool picture there. And Cain is exhorted to master it. Cain has important choices here. He's not doomed to sin. He's not doomed to displease God or cause damage in this world. It's interesting that the verse can be read more as command and deterministic, but Usually it's taken to be more figurative as an exhortation. John Steinbeck in East of Eden makes quite a bit of this as well. The power of the the choice here is a key to that great book. Now, crouching implies that sin is ready for action, so to speak. And of course, we can see this in our own lives, that sin is crouching at our doors. It implies, the metaphor does, that the sin, the temptation is subtle, sinister, strategic, and imminent. And I think this also comes to mind in what we teach children about anger and other sins. Eric Kaiser says, sometimes something to teach a child is that anger, like other storms, often follows a warning and always comes with a price. Now, Cain does not give any recorded verbal response, and this implies more pretending or lack of concern for what God is saying to him. On to verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. I've got this part of my notes titled Murdered He Wrote. It's after the uh, old TV show there. Did he use his bare hands? Did he use an existing tool? Did he make a tool for this purpose? We're not told. The New Testament redeems Abel. You look at passages like Matthew 23, 35, Hebrews 11, 4, and ultimately verses in Revelation that talk about God uh, gaining vengeance for the martyrs. But for now, one commentator notes that Abel is little more than a plot device. The first victim of the first murder is perhaps a man to pity, but we feel no ache at his loss. Abel slides off the page like a bookmark, a symbol of what we ought to be, a fine abstraction like righteousness that we agree our friends should pursue with far greater diligence. Abel is just there. I mean, he's just present. He is a plot device, to use the commentator. 
And so where does this leave us as readers? Well, it's a call to focus on Cain. Now, did Cain know he was killing or what happened to Abel? I mean, we read the story and we know, but the only idea of killing would come from the story that might have been told him by his parents in Genesis 3.21 about the death of an animal. Maybe he understands killing through Abel's sacrifice or has prior knowledge somewhere else. But in any case, the anger, as Christ talks about in Matthew 5, takes us to murder in this terrible story. Now, why is it so heinous? I think I've got seven reasons for that that I want to list off here. First, man is made in God's image. So killing anyone, murdering anyone rather, is a terrible sin. Second, he's killing his baby or little brother. The word brother appears seven times in this passage to underline this. And at least this point, we worry that this is the natural relationship between brothers as a first story about brothers. We hope Cain is an anomaly, but it's not a good start to relationships between siblings in general and brothers in particular. Third, the sin is heinous because it's under false pretenses. Hey, let's go out to the field. Fourth, it's premeditated, and it's informed by his impassioned, God-given reasoning ability. He takes Abel where no one will see them, or rescue Abel, except maybe God. The word here in the Hebrew is salah, which is an uncultivated field in uninhabited land. In other words, it's the wilderness. So he's going way out there to commit this crime. He knows something is wrong here. He doesn't want to be caught by humans. Maybe he thinks God is local and won't see him there. Maybe he thinks he's taking him beyond God's reach. Verse 10 talks about blood and ground. It may imply that Cain tried to hide or bury the body. We'll see this from Moses later. But, you know, Cain is reasoning through all of this stuff, and it's a cold-blooded, premeditated murder. Fifth reason, Cain is killing apparently a good man. He's done nothing wrong that we can tell. 1 John 3, verses 12 and 15 says, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Verse 15, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. You know, a more responsible response, more reasonable response, you know, would have been maybe if Abel had done him wrong and stolen from him or hit him. You know, then you can imagine maybe Cain overreacting, but Cain, Cain is killing someone who's done nothing wrong to him nothing wrong at all. Sixth, he's getting rid of a source of jealousy or competition, and that's a lame reason, really. You know, it's ironic, Cain is the older and seemingly favored brother, and yet he's taking out Abel. And this action is not going to solve his problems, certainly his character problems, it only changes the context and the circumstances. I think it's in the introduction to Steinbeck's East of Eden that I read this, but I've got this in my notes. I think everyone in the world to a large or small extent has felt rejection. And with this rejection comes anger. And with anger, some kind of crime and revenge for the rejection. And with the crime, guilt. And there is the story of mankind. And so ultimately this story and Steinbeck's exploration of it in East of Eden is about how do we deal with these frustrations. By the way, if you haven't read East of Eden, great book. All the characters, primary characters, names begin with C and A in each generation. And the C characters are like Cain, and the A characters are like Abel. So great novel to read, but a great exploration of the themes in Genesis 4. And finally, the sin is so terrible because it's after a warning and encouragement from God. 
The voice of reason here from God is not enough to overcome Cain's passion and impulsiveness and his anger. In fact, it probably made him even angrier. Cass says Cain ought to be pleased by God's attention and interest in him. Though he respected Abel's offering, God speaks only to Cain. Cain seems to hold more interest, being both more promising and more problematic. But like many an angry person, Cain finds this offensive, adding insult to injury. It's as if Cain is saying to God, as Satan does, okay, here's a sacrifice for you, right? I'll I'll show you a good sacrifice. And that's what Satan does. He attacks other people, as Cain does here. Two other big points to make here. The story implies a general connection between religion and violence at its worst. Osborne says the account of one brother killing another, and not surprisingly, it's over the proper way to worship God. What a sobering thought here, right, that we have violence and religion being connected through sacrifice. And second, this is the original martyr persecution or why do bad things happen to good people story. Uh, Job and Habakkuk will later revisit this in great detail. You find it sprinkled throughout the scriptures, but this is the first story. And it's introducing to us the biblical idea that being good is not all there is. It's also interesting because God is seemingly silent or inactive here. And this is the, the term theodicy, right? When does God intervene in the affairs of man? And early on, we're learning that there's free will and it's allowed to have considerable reign. We saw that in Genesis 3. We're seeing it in Genesis 4. Now, God is not inactive. We saw that earlier in the passage. Borgman says, God does what God can do. Before the deed, God comes to Cain with whispers of good counsel and comfort. The other big picture thing to say about this theme is that when doubts about God's goodness can enter, it's what makes faith possible, and faith in particular, that there's a bigger, better story out there. Let's think about this story. Here is that the first who went to the grave was the first to go to heaven. He is the first fruits for God. God is snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. Killing Abel sends him to his father's arms. And maybe this is part of a much bigger plan. Gary Anderson notes that the mouth of Hades was opened for the first time unjustly. Henceforth, the legal foundations of the underworld rested on shaky grounds. Hades gets Abel. Right, the, the waiting place, but he doesn't need to, he shouldn't be there. It's an injustice that starts off death. And so maybe that's part of how what God's ultimately going to redeem through the cross and through resurrection and Jesus. All right, a good place to take a break. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Spread the word about Pure Radio, the station, and this show. Welcome back to the Word Diet. We're in Genesis 4 today, and we've gotten to verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? One of the most famous verses in the Bible here opens with a rhetorical question from God. Ironically, Abel is with God. It's interesting that God does not accuse him here. He asks a question. We've seen this a number of times in Genesis 3. We saw the devil do it to open things up. The uh, temptation of Genesis 3, we saw God use it when he was trying to work with Adam and Eve in chapter 3. Here we see it again, the power of questions to stir the soul. Again, God is hoping for a confession, just like as with Adam and Eve. Matthew Henry says those who would be justified before God must accuse themselves. He's hoping that Cain will have come to his senses 
after this terrible sin. We'll see what happens here shortly. Potentially a time gap before the question. God allowing space for repentance. How much time elapses between verse 8 and 9 is kind of interesting to consider. Unfortunately, Cain does not take the opportunity. His answer, I don't know. Let's open with that. Well, first of all, that's a blatant lie. Or maybe it's a semi-true since he really didn't know what happened beyond death. What did Cain think he was going to get away with before God or man? And it's interesting when we talked about not knowing something, that's an ironic answer given the role of knowledge of good and evil so far in the story. His claimed ignorance is interesting and ironic. And then the powerful question at the end of verse 9, Cain responds with his own question, am I my brother's keeper? Cass says, to keep the inquisitive voice of God from forcing him to fully confront the meaning of his deed, he answers the question with a question. And again, we're back to the use of questions, right? Questions can be used to do great things, but they can be used to deflect, and that's what Cain does here. His deliberate murder is followed by, at least supposedly, his callous indifference toward his brother. Cass says, turns out to be the maxim of the would-be murderer, tacitly to profess indifference to his fate, that he just doesn't care. In terms of style, probably meant and expressed as sarcasm, tinged with some indignation and perhaps mocking a bit. Aren't you his keeper? What kind of keeper are you? Am I the shepherd's shepherd? In any case, this question is the seed of social ethics. We are to keep our brothers, broadly defined. Of course, the parable of the Good Samaritan will pick this up in the ministry of Jesus in defining one's neighbor. And Cain questions who's in charge here. And again, given free will, the answer is, in a sense, we are. we got to make choices, and in particular, to be our brother's keeper. Verses 10 through 12, the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Let's open with what God didn't say. There's no direct answer to Cain's question. God's response could have been, not exactly. One commentator says, talk about giving God an opening, but God doesn't reply. The question is left hanging, a plumb line right throughout history. And this is the question to us as well. And our, it's a call to us. What are we going to do with this question and our frequent failure to answer it well? Implicitly, God's not answering him rejects Cain's false and frivolous reply. In essence, I'm in control here. I'm the one who's asking the questions. It works. He also works to get Cain's attention with a more pointed question. Again, a very sobering answer after Cain's flippancy. Verse 10 continues with the pointed, direct command to listen to me and or to Abel's blood crying out. The latter is a clear condemnation of Cain and his contribution to injustice. For us, I think, you know, the, the blood of unbelievers can be our, on our hands if we don't share the gospel with them adequately. Think about Acts 20, verses 26 and 27. Paul says, I'm innocent of the blood of any of you. I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Or think about the watchman in Ezekiel 3 and 33. 
And this is God's second recorded non-question again this time to pronounce curses and punishments. The curse in 11 and 12, no more crops and a new identity. He'll be a restless wanderer. So Cain here is the first human to be cursed. Remember, it was the ground and the snake that were cursed in Genesis 3. The effects of the curse in chapter 3, verses 17 through 19 here are extended in a way to Cain. It's fitting because the ground was active for Abel's blood, but it's not going to be active for Cain's efforts anymore. The ground yields life, human and plant, but now it symbolizes death. Now he wanders, reversing roles with Abel. He's restless, verse 12, because others will not welcome him. His conscience will hopefully haunt him, and he knows by experience now that life hangs by a thread. It's also interesting that God chose not to kill him immediately. You know, later we'll have instant deaths elsewhere. The law will prescribe it, but not here, right? He's not killed. He is kept alive. Time will be a harsher punishment, a just and appropriate punishment. Uh, Given his impulsiveness, God's not going to reply in kind, and he'll serve as a living testimony to others. It's also the case that it gives more time to allow for Cain's repentance. If not, he would go to, you know, what we would call hell. And for now, until he repents, he'll experience a hell on earth. And it's interesting that the earth and the ground will be the avenger here. He couldn't flee. And again, it's an apt punishment. It implies that what he had relied on before is going to be his punishment. He's denied sustenance, security, and identity through this punishment. Verses 13 through 16, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Verse 13, still, there's no remorse, no repentance, only fear, despair, and self-pity. Notice his use of first person throughout, except in verse 14 when he looks to blame shift. It's interesting that he had such a strong idea of the severity of the punishment, or maybe he's inferring it from the perceived seriousness of the sin. He complained previously about God's judgment. Now he's complaining about God's justice. The punishment is more than he can bear but his sin isn't more than God or Abel should bear. It's all very twisted. He's still not broken, which is, you know, troubling, staggering at some level, except we see that in our own sin and the sins of others. Verse 14 is that blame shifting. You're driving me. No, it's your responsibility. You're not repenting, right? That's what happens here. So, It reminds me of God sending people to hell, so to speak, right? No, you're choosing hell. If you don't want to be with God and his people on this earth, if you're not interested in that, then you're choosing that for eternity, right? It's not God choosing that. You're choosing that right now. So let's not blame shift about who's driving who. End of verse 14, the punishment driven from the land. How far? We're not told. Hidden from God's presence. That's Cain's assumption. Restless wanderer, that's accurate. That was said back in verse 12. And he seems to be in serious danger of being killed. Now, killed by whom? Is this the rapid future growth of the race? Even if so, would Adam's relatives have killed Cain? We'll have more to say about this next week in the passage that follows. 
maybe it's just broadly the fear of the unknown. Maybe he thought there were others beyond God's presence as he went further out. Maybe he didn't know that they were the only people on earth. Of course, it's also an ironic fear, given that he's a murderer. But hopefully his fear of these other things will drive him to fear God, which is the most important thing. It also seems like Cain is exaggerating or seeing things as worse than they are, and certainly as they will end up being. But he is out of divine protection, such as it is. God hadn't protected Abel, and so maybe he has reason to be fearful. And maybe he's lonely. Uh, Ironically, uh, getting rid of his brother is going to make that a bigger problem. And he's away from God, which is an ironic complaint, because he didn't seem all that concerned about it before. Similar to his parents' punishment, why didn't he learn from their mistakes? Well, then again, we have a hard time with that too. Verse 15, God responds, no, there'll be promised vengeance from God and an unidentified mark on Cain. So here again, there's grace and judgment. Cain will be spared directly and now indirectly, but there are still consequences. I think bigger picture, this tells us that God wants to stop a potential cycle of violence. The bigger picture here is it's not going to solve the problem. Instead, the answer is mercy and grace. Verse 16, Cain went out. In chapter 3, verse 24, God drove Adam out. And so Cain leaves voluntarily, uh, which is not surprising given his, given his motivation and attitude toward God. Or else he just doesn't get it. He's blinded by sin. He goes to the land of Nod, which is fittingly unknown in its location, and it means wandering. And he heads east of Eden. Again, that, that Steinbeck book reference. And Eden, of course, is known for its comfort and safety, and he's heading away from that. The word lived in verse 16 implies that he dwelt and settled. We'll see that next week as well. He's refusing to wander as Abel the shepherd did and as God has commanded in verse 13. Okay, going back to Adam and Eve with a few thoughts to wrap this up. Their introduction to the knowledge of good and evil gives birth to one of each, right? There's a good child and an evil child born, so that's interesting. Second, Adam's initial sin reaches its first peak here, and it's just one generation later. As Michael Doris puts it, this apple didn't fall far from the tree. The first person with an umbilical cord was a murderer. The first two holy human beings are portrayed here, and one kills the other. This is the first physical death of man, and by murder or bloodshed. And this is opposed to the first bloodshed, which is by God, to cover Adam and Eve's sin and shame. One generation after Adam and Eve's sin and shame, Cain now adds flippancy and hardness of heart. No fear, even to the point of talking smack to God. And so we see sin nature stepping up from Genesis 3's supporting role to a starring role here in Genesis 4. As with his parents, we see Cain blame shifting when we'd like to see introspection or repentance. And so a chapter later, it's getting worse. Not a good sign. And here's the sobering thing for us as we close this out. We're all Cain's children. We're not descended from Abel. We're descended from Cain and from Seth. And we still have a choice here. Uh, We always have a choice. God's always wanting repentance. God's always wanting relationships. So let's take that lesson from this, right? We're Cain's children in the sense that we have a choice. Let's choose well. Good to be with you today. Remember the podcasts of future episodes and past episodes are available on Spotify, Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts. 
I hope to interact with you on my Facebook account. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.